Thanks, Pastor Colleen. Uh, and yeah, I'm Shannon's husband. Uh, so for those of you who know her, she's an excellent speaker. So it is, uh, it is uh, no pressure, right? <laughs> uh, thank you to this church for being a place where Shannon and I can be in Christian community with each of you. It's a special place, and I would huh, uh, not be up here if this church wasn't the safe place that it is. And it is an honor to serve with the staff here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Um, as a church, we've been studying the book of Mark, and so today our word takes us to chapter 12, 28 to 34. But first, a quick story. Six years ago, when we started visiting this church, we took our pastors up on their offer for lunch. Denny, Cheryl, and Colleen took us out to um, Los Arroyos and Montecito, and they shared their hopes for the church. And we shared our quick life story and our church backgrounds. I grew up in a Pentecostal home and a Pentecostal church. My dad is a Pentecostal pastor, and I attended a Pentecostal college. But while in college and for some time after, I actually held beliefs that resembled Reformed theology. So yet here I was exploring Wesleyan theology by visiting and contemplating a Free Methodist church that would eventually be my next church home. Denny asked me what I thought of the Free Methodist sermons, belief statements, and worship compared to what I had known and experienced before. And I sat thinking for a while and I said, I think we focus too much on John Wesley and not enough on Christ. And Denny, without skipping a beat, said, John Wesley would agree with you. <laughs> so it is with great irony, a sense of God's humor, and as a committed Wesleyan, that I start my first sermon in a free Methodist church with a story of John Wesley. <laughs> John was born in 1703, and he's one of the founders of Methodism. When he was in college, he and his brother Charles were part of a religious club that was nicknamed the Holy Club. Their club would study the Bible, attend church, and take communion every week. They fasted twice a week, and they had several times set aside to pray. When he was 32, John and Charles decided to cross the Atlantic and serve as missionaries in the newly established colony of Georgia. For three and a half months on the ship, they continued their Holy Club ways. They woke up at 4 o'clock every morning to pray for an hour. Then they would study the Bible together for two hours. And then after breakfast, they would assemble the other passengers for a time of public prayer. And then each afternoon, they would go around the ship witnessing to others who did not know Christ. Sounds attractive, right? But their mission work on the ship was a failure. And their mission work in Georgia was also a failure. They wrote that almost no one was attracted to their message. And their message was basically this, that everyone needs to do what they're doing. They need to live frugal lives and give what they have to charities. And they need to do lots of fasting and praying and Bible reading. John went back to England, and with a sense of failure weighing heavily on his heart, he remembered a group of German Moravian Christians he had sailed with. He remembered a horrible storm, and everyone on the ship thought they were going to die, and they were scared to death. Everyone except these Moravian Christians— they sang hymns throughout the storm. Wesley wrote later in life that he wanted what these Moravian Christians had. He had felt like he didn't have that kind of peace. And on a morning in May 1738, 
he opened his Bible and he did this thing that some of us probably have our own name for, but some people call it lucky dipping. Lucky dipping is when you grab the Bible, you open it, and you pick a verse and you see what God might be saying to you through that. He was lucky dipping that day and he came on this verse, this verse that's in our text today. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He had read this verse so many times before. He knew the scriptures, but something really hit him that day. Before it was over, he finally came to understand what it meant. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. So let's dive into our passage in Mark 12, 28 to 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus said, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as one's self, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord and King, your word is true. Our hope in worship is to always make you known as the one who has authority in our life. It's to recalibrate us, to reorient ourselves to your faithfulness to us, to feel and know your loving kindness, and for us to recognize you as the one true God who is. We ask that you be in our midst to help the one who preaches, and to help the one who listens. Holy Spirit, please speak to us, fill in the gaps, and help us be open to your correction, and renew us where we need it. Because of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, this passage takes place the day after Jesus and his disciples clear out the temple from those who had turned it into a place that looked like robbers or thieves lived there. And in the process, they anger the religious elite. Because of this act and the fact that the religious elite were afraid of him, they looked for ways to kill him. And as a reminder, we're only a few days away from Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. So here we are, Jesus and his disciples return to the temple. And they're asked, they're immediately approached by those of the vanguard. And Jesus is asked questions from different groups of religious leaders about his authority, his loyalty, and his knowledge. In verse 28, we read that one of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well. See, whereas those questions previously had been asked by groups, our next question comes from a scribe, an expert in the law, and he's an associate to the Pharisees, and it's clear that his attitude is different. The scribe is sympathetic and not hostile, and that may come from the fact that he has listened to the previous dialogues and he's heard how well Jesus has responded to them. So he continues on with his question. Which commandment is the first of all? This question was very much a living issue in the day. 
And it all started with Moses. Moses was given the Ten Commandments, and then he was given laws and statutes that became known as the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws. And that list grew and grew and grew until we have a total of 613 laws. Because of this long list, for centuries, rabbis were trying to identify which laws were more binding than others. They were trying to assign weight to certain laws so they could better interpret all the other laws. Here, the scribe's motivation is very much the same. He's asking, from which of the, from which of the laws did the other laws come from? Jesus' response begins with a commonly known prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is known as the Shema, which means to hear, and it's the shortened version of the one that appears in Deuteronomy. This prayer is used to begin temple services, to remind the community that they are under God's reign and he is one. So when Jesus uses it here, he's starting church, he's opening up temple, and he's setting out to say, what I say next, you're going to want to pay attention to. We note that Jesus was asked for one uh, first commandment, but he responds with two. These two are a summarization of the Ten Commandments. He summarizes the first four out of the ten, which deal with loving God, and the last six of the ten, which deal with human relationships to others. This summarization, though, wasn't that new to the scribe. In fact, there were others in the Bible who had tried to identify the core of the law. King David attempted to reduce the list from 613 to 11, and then Isaiah reduced them to six, and then Micah reduced the six to three, and again, Isaiah brought the three down to two, keep justice and do righteousness. And then Habakkuk gave us just one, the, righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. But what Jesus does here is something entirely unique. He says that neither of these laws are above one another. They're on the same playing field. They're on the same level. And so this is the new way to think about the core of the law. Jesus is the one who holds ultimate authority to rewrite and place laws together as he sees fit. And in this case, he does so to point to how they are connected. In order to understand that connection between these two laws, I think we need to try to understand the commandment to love. Some of us might know and believe that God is love and that God wants us to be like him. So a lot of love seems understandable. But why make it something that, like a speeding ticket, has the rewards of obedience and the consequences of disobedience? When it comes to calling, to when it comes to our calling for a love for God with all of our being and loving our neighbors as ourself, disobedience or failing might come all too easy. So why make it a law? I believe that the answer is found in our failed attempts to keep our covenant with God. See, throughout biblical human history, we have tried to keep our relationship with God intimate and connected. And by we, I mean, I mean the collective we. We have failed at it since the beginning of time, starting with Adam and Eve. Failure then continues with Noah and his family. The list goes on. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, all the way up to including Moses and past him. But God gives Moses his laws to guide their lives, and with it, the promise of blessing if they obeyed it. However, human nature is so disordered and so sinful that despite these privileges for centuries of God's patience, his people turned away from him. 
And so on it goes. This relationship of deep connection with our creator is repeatedly damaged and needs repair. And in order to repair this relationship with God, God also gives Moses laws concerning a system of offerings and sacrifice to deal with their sins and failures. So this is the design of how we repair broken relationships with God in the Old Covenant. This design lasts through the periods of judges, kings, and prophets. And until the end of the Old Testament, we find that humanity is in terrible shape and without hope. But God, I don't think a favorite thing to say, but God, God knows there's one more way, one drastic way to make it known just how much he loves humanity, how much he's committed to a relationship with each and every one of us. He chooses to enter time, space, and history in the most humble way possible as a newborn baby. He grew up having lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross to die. When he was raised from the dead, it was revealed that he had come to fulfill the law with his perfect life to offer the final sacrifice, taking what we deserved and securing the promised blessings through God's favor. Thus, destroying the old way, destroying the old design, and giving us a new covenant. So, why is love a law? When we fail to love God as neighbor, God, to love God and our neighbor, when we fail to feel and act accordingly in obedience to the principles that bring blessing and keep us in intimacy with God, we have Jesus standing in front of us so that he's looking at us through the work and glorious love of Jesus. Love is a law so that through belief in him and intimate close connection with God, our covenant with him, it's possible and it's repairable and it's always in right standing. Jesus merges these two laws to speak to the dependency between the godly and human relationships. I'll illustrate it with this quote from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton is a famous monk and an author. He says, We are not at peace with our others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. At the core of Jesus' answer is the directive to love God with every human faculty possible and to do it with such a degree that it spills out into the love of neighbor as one's self. In Luke's version of this passage, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus defines neighbor as the one most in need. The one in need is the one who is hurt and broken and the one who is most unlike us. And for us to extend an act of love and emotion might require us to pause our day, pick them up, and take a detour to a place where they can get care on our dime. See, the point is, acts of love cost something, either your time, your treasure, or your talents. And when it comes to the Christian community, the love that we have for one another While writing about the effects of sacraments had on her renewal of faith, author Rachel Held Evans said this, Christianity isn't simply meant to be believed. It's meant to be lived, shared, eaten, spoken, and enacted in the presence of other people. The sacraments reminded me that, try as I may, I can't be a Christian on my own. I need a community. I need the church. Church, that is you and me. 
we, encourage, we gather and encourage others in their faith and to invite and welcome others to the faith. Our relationship with God is a reflection of that fact that we can't do life alone and without love. So let's be encouraged to be in Christian community in this building and outside of it and to obey this commandment as empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. The scribe, in verse 33, enthusiastically affirms what Jesus says. And being an expert in the law, he responds with an addition from a paraphrased quote from Samuel in the Old Testament. This love and obedience is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe's addition at the end tells us that he hasn't fully put it together that Jesus is the Messiah, the one bringing the kingdom, and that he should abandon his own way. Jesus gives him an encouragement and a warning all in one. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, in a few days, Jesus is going to die and rise again. He's going to fulfill the prophecies and laws that was written centuries earlier. He's going to make it possible to be in the kingdom of God. It's like he's saying to the scribe, you don't get it yet, and in a few days I will provide a way in for people just like you. So I'll close with finishing the story that I started with, which will help us illustrate this point. After Wesley failed on those missionary journeys in Georgia, he goes back to London, and he starts meeting with a Moravian pastor named Peter Bowler. And Bowler would eventually point out to Wesley that Wesley's hope for eternal life is not in Christ. John writes in his journal, I thought him so uncharitable, saying in my heart, Are not my endeavors sufficient grounds of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? For I have nothing else in which to trust but my endeavors. But later that week, as we noted earlier, he was lucky dipping. And he opened his Bible and he read these words, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And this is what he says happened later. In the evening, I went quite unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate, where someone was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter till nine, while describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone. And the assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law and sin and death. So how did Wesley finally enter the kingdom of God? By no longer trusting in his best endeavors, but by trusting in Christ alone. As we spend time in reflection and we sing our last hymn, I encourage you to ask yourself a few questions. When it comes to sharing our faith, how effective is our witness? Am I witnessing the love of Christ, or are we telling others that they need to be just like me in order to be saved? If we are bound by righteousness, we will bind others the same way, so we need to be careful. And when it comes to proximity to the kingdom, are we just near the kingdom of God, or are we in it? Are we under the reign of God, or do we attempt to do our own thing? Am I trying to prove my worth to God instead of trusting and experiencing his love? Or the flip side of that, we should ask, am I taking advantage of God's grace and love for me by not allowing the Holy Spirit to convict me? So then does my relationship with God need repair? 
If you feel the answer to any of these questions is no, Jesus has provided a way to make that right. Believe that he has done so and trust in him and find one of the pastors here to help guide you. And if your answer comes back as God is pleased with you, let's thank God for his strength, for it provides sustenance. Will you pray with me? Lord, your word is true. Your Holy Spirit speaks to us even now. And we are grateful. We pray that we would be under your authority, that we would be in your kingdom. And we are grateful for Christ who has provided a way for that. We love you, Lord. And where we fail to do so, may you give us strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.